By improving their work while they're actually doing it, healthcare practitioners can deliver extraordinary savings in lives and dollars. You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me is Dr. Stephen Spear, Senior Fellow at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement in Cambridge, Massachusetts, a senior lecturer at MIT, and author of the book, Chasing the Rabbit. Dr. Spear, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Oh, thank you for having me on the air. Please summarize how applying continual process improvement improves health care. Let's step back and talk about why we need this approach of continuous improvement. So first, let's take a look at what the symptoms are of the healthcare system. The symptoms are a great science that promises terrific treatments, Fantastic people who are using that science who you would also think could provide great treatment, and yet a system that continually disappoints. It disappoints in terms of quality of care. It disappoints in terms of patient safety. It disappoints in terms of cost, access, so on and so on. Then the question is, why is it so disappointing when you have people with great potential and science with great potential? And the reason it disappoints is that in order to deliver on the science, what we need to do is take the work of Many, many specialists, even for something as simple as preventative and primary care, the number of doctors, nurses, nurse practitioners, lab technicians, secretaries, schedulers, and so forth, to get a patient just through a regular cycle of checkups is in the dozens. And you start getting into something like managing chronic conditions or combinations of chronic conditions, diabetes coupled with arthritis, coupled with heart disease, or managing the delivery of care for acute conditions, what you end up with is, depending on dozens, if not hundreds of people, each of whom has to do their own work exceptionally well, but also to ensure that their work gets pulled together, integrated in a harmonious, coherent fashion for very high performance. And that really gets into the crux of the problem. The problem is that in order to deliver care to people, you have to be responsible for managing very, very complex systems over, through which that care is delivered. So this ties into the continuous improvement piece. The continuous improvement part of this is that any time, whether it's in healthcare or outside of healthcare, you've got an incredibly complex system. It's impossible to design that system so that it's going to function well, which I realize sounds like a conundrum. We need the systems to function well, but we can't design them well. So what's the alternative? Well, the alternative to this is that if you look outside of healthcare to some exceptionally high-performing organizations, you realize that They deal with complexity by setting themselves up to constantly discover what it is in the design of their processes don't work. When they find something that doesn't work, they quickly swarm the situation because they realize that when they were designing this thing that was complex, this is the part they didn't understand. When they swarm the problem that they're experiencing, they contain it because what they don't want to do is allow it in an infectious fashion to spread to other parts of the system. But the other thing they do is they very, very quickly start investigating why the problem happened so that they can prevent the problem from reoccurring. So what you see in high-performing organizations outside of healthcare is that they design things knowing that the designs are going to be imperfect. So what they ensure, what they're constantly striving is to make sure that they have a constant, ongoing dynamic, self-discovery, self-correction, self-improvement, and self-innovation. And so then you carry this back into healthcare and you say, well, why is continuous improvement so necessary? It's necessary because we've gotten so good at the science, the systems we need to deliver on that science are very, very complex. 
And because they're complex, we can't just sit back and say, oh, we'll design it once and count on its working, or we'll figure it out as we go along. The complexity is too great. So that leaves us with one other alternative. We can't design it so it'll work well, which means we have to constantly discover ever better approaches. And that's where the continuous improvement piece comes in. Tell us the story of the five-year-old boy in the MICU. This is a tragic story. It got documented in the Boston Globe some years ago. And this, this exactly ties into this problem of great people, great science, bad systems, exacting a tremendous cost, both financial cost, but also, in this particular case, a tremendous cost in terms of human suffering. A kid goes into a local hospital here in Boston suffering from epilepsy, and, and the science has gotten so advanced that the doctors are now in a position to put tiny little electronic gizmos, uh, you can see how coming into the layman's perspective, so gizmos inside his brain, which are going to monitor his, his brain's function, and actually when he suffers uh, epilepsy, do something to correct it. Well, it's really quite remarkable. It's, you know, I grew up in an age where we used to watch the Bionic Man on, on TV, and now it's fantasy, but now, now it's reality. So the kid goes into the hospital, and you think about the science necessary to diagnose his condition and take symptoms of epilepsy and, and narrow it down to the things that actually cause his form of epilepsy. And then there's the great science which says, well, not only have we diagnosed the child, but we have such imaging technology, we can figure out which parts of the brain are active during the epilepsy, so we know where to put the sensors and put these gizmos to correct the the electrical impulses in his brain to, to control the epilepsy. And we have such advanced science that we actually can operate in such a minute fashion in such a delicate part of the body, which is the, the child's brain. And we have such great people that they can manage all this science. So that, that's the potential part. So what happens to this poor child? He goes in, the diagnosis is great, the surgery goes great, and he comes out of the surgery, and he's in the post-operative recovery unit, and he starts having a seizure. And 90 minutes go by before medication to con- control his seizures is given. It's too little, too late, and... A few hours after what was deemed successful surgery, the child dies of a heart attack, of heart failure. So the investigation that ensued immediately after, they started asking the doctors and nurses and all the other care providers, they said, well, why did it take you so long to deal with the seizures the child was having? Because that wasn't the hard part of the care, because that, that was old hat. So they asked the surgeons who had just completed the surgery, I said, well, why didn't you give medication to your patient? And their question was, what do you mean our patient? They said, well, the child you just operated on. They said, yeah, we just operated on him. We were with him, but we had just transferred him, transported him, and we thought we transferred responsibility to the people in the the PACU. So they turned to the people in the PACU, and they said, well, how come you didn't start managing his condition? And they said, oh, well, we were here, but we actually thought he was still a surgical patient. This was the, the neurologist. So we didn't want to jump in front of them. We were waiting for them to act. So the finger got passed again. And then there was some additional finger pointing. And then the question was, there were some very, very senior expert people on the telephone. And they said, well, why didn't you, when you heard what was going on, why didn't you insist that he would be given medication to control the seizures? They said, oh, well, we were on the phone, and we didn't want to supersede the people who were there and had much better information, we thought, by being present than we had being on the telephone. Then they went and they asked the people, in the room, well, why didn't you act? Well, we didn't want to supersede the people who were more senior to us on the telephone. But the point, the point about this is that this child, had he had the seizure in his doctor's office, 
something would have been done. If he had had the seizure in the, in the operating room, something would have been done. If he had had the seizure later on in a med surge nursing unit or in an ICU, something would have been done. But he had the, the, the distinct misfortune of having the seizure in this gray zone where who was responsible for what hadn't been fully worked out. All right, so let, let's tie this back further to this issue of continuous improvement. The problem this child had was not that any of the doctors or nurses was inadequate in how they did their work. It was at this one moment, it was unclear who was responsible for his care. Now, there's lots of discussion around error and avoidable harm. And, and whether it's in healthcare or outside of healthcare, these typical statistics that for every time there's a calamity, whether it's a patient gets killed, a plane crashes, that for each one of those calamities, there's five to ten serious injuries. So, for instance, in the case of the healthcare, the patient doesn't die but suffers a severe and permanent injury. And for each one of those, there's five to tenfold where there's injury, but it's not quite so serious. So the patient suffers injury from which he or she recovers with sufficient therapy. And then for each one of those, there's five or tenfold where the patient has a, a close call, but that is, it doesn't leave, lead to injury. And even then, there's another multiple, which is for every close call, there's five or ten slips or mistakes where someone does something which is quite wrong, but they catch it before it has any consequence. And you start taking those statistics and say, well, for every death, there's five to ten injuries, and for every injury, there's five to ten close calls, and for every close call, there's five to ten slips or mistakes. What you get is, for the patient who dies for some avoidable reason, there were hundreds of experiences people had, if not tens of thousands of experiences, where something went wrong, but what went wrong wasn't dealt with. So the flip side of continuous improvement is people have problems, and rather than seeing the problem, containing the problem, solving the problem, what they do is they see the problem, experience the problem, and they work around the problem. But the problem with that is that all the factors that caused the problem in the first place, they're still there. So in the case of this poor child and going through this procedure, which should have provided miraculous outcomes and instead provided this enormously tragic outcome instead, the problem is the pieces of the system worked well. The pieces came together in a really tragic fashion on that particular day. And the other thing is that we can have a very high degree of confidence that the pieces had come together badly other times, but they hadn't come to, together badly other times and caused such negative outcomes. So the problem was left unresolved, the causal factors were left untreated, and this time they emerged and erupted and sabotaged the care of this child. If you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me is Dr. Stephen Spear from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, discussing health care reform. Dr. Spear, describe how Virginia Mason Medical Center made change a regular part of work. Well, I have to tell you, of the organizations within healthcare which are really trying to change how they operate from a very functional, discipline, specialty-based orientation, and one which is very static in terms of how it updates and improves its processes, to one which is very process-oriented, worried very, very much about the flow of work start to finish and how the pieces come together, and in a very dynamic fashion, continually self-correcting, self-improving, self-innovating. Virginia Mason is on the cutting edge within healthcare. What have they been doing? Well, there are a couple of very, very critical things. First and foremost, Gary Kaplan, who's CEO of the hospital, has made it his mission to be an organization with process excellence. 
So when it comes to training people, promoting people, advancing people, and so on and so on, he's made a point that as much as they, the hospital depends on having people who are outstanding within their function, that the hospital has to have people who are outstanding in process. Second, with this idea that you have to respond to broken processes to see what's wrong with them. And when you see what's wrong with them, you have to fix them. So Virginia Mason has made an investment in training people to be process experts. Dr. Spear, thank you so much for joining us to discuss health care reform. Oh, you're quite welcome. I do appreciate the chance to speak with you and your listeners. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions at ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts of the ReachMD Library. Thank you for listening.